Bitcoin is not going away. Whether or not you like it, whether or not you have qualms with it, whether or not you know your government has banned it or you know of a government that has banned it, it lives and breathes on the internet and it is effectively unstoppable. Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got an interview with Yassine Alamandra, who is from ARK Investment Management. But before that, I've got a message from my amazing sponsors. So first up, we have Casa, who are the best in Bitcoin security. And I am a Casa customer. I've got my Bitcoin locked up with these guys. Now, with Casa, it could not be easier to protect your Bitcoin from hackers, personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failure, and so much more. And with Casa being so badass they got a product for every Bitcoiner. So with Casa Gold, you get triple the security of your hardware wallet, and it only costs $10 a month. And the product I have, which is Casa Platinum, you get their 305 multi-sig, the best protection for large Bitcoin holders at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get a full service offering, including a personal, customized review of your security, inheritance planning, and of course, their best-in-class security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And next up, we have my sponsor, Sportsbet.io, the best in online gaming. And what a start to the Premier League season. Three games and three wins. And Sportsbet are massively supporting the return of the Premier League this year with two amazing things. Firstly, they are sponsoring Southampton and they've put a Bitcoin logo on the front of the shirt, but they didn't stop there. They also announced that they are the new betting partner for Arsenal. Now this team, this sports bet team, I went to visit them previously, before this pandemic. I went out to Estonia, I got to know them and they love Bitcoin. They want to support Bitcoin. They can do everything to get Bitcoin in front of people and with football back on the TV, they've made it easy for anyone who wants to get out there and have a bet on Liverpool winning, a bet on Tottenham losing or any of your favourite games or teams. They always have loads of promotions for football fans. Just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. And lastly today, we're going to talk about Least Authority, who I've welcomed back as a sponsor on the podcast. Now listen, this isn't for everyone out there. This is for you techies, the teams out there who are building the applications. Least Authority is a security consulting company who's pushing the limits on how to build privacy-respecting solutions. They specialize in security audits, design specification reviews, and security by design. And they can help you improve the security of your wallet application, key management solution, layer 2 protocol, P2P network design, use of cryptography, and so much more. Now, if you want to boost your security strategy, you can arrange a no-obligation call to find out how Least Authority can help you on your next project. Just head over to their website, hit the schedule a call button, and that's it, leastauthority.com, which is L-E-A-S-T-A-U-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y.com. Okay, so onto the show today, and I am joined by Yassine Alamandra, who is from ARK Investment Management. Now, he recently wrote a double white paper on the value proposition of Bitcoin for ARK Investment, and it is a monster. It's linked in the show notes. I read both parts with massive interest, and then I reached out to Yassine and said, come on, man, we've got to make a show about this. So we agreed to come on. Now, these two papers look at everything from how trust-based systems that we are used to have fallen short and the benefit of moving to a trust-minimized system like Bitcoin. And in the second part, it looked at Bitcoin as an investment and it gets pretty bullish. It feels to me like the tide is turning and the bigger players are starting to look at Bitcoin a bit more seriously. Obviously, 
We had MicroStrategy recently putting a large part of their treasury into Bitcoin, but we've had everything that's happening with Grayscale and Fidelity. Everything's just getting really, really bullish. So it was really cool to get Yassine on and talk through these white papers. And like I said, if you haven't read them, they're linked in the show notes. I highly recommend you check them out. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, on my other show, Defiance, I've got the second part of my multi-part documentary looking into Ghislaine Maxwell, the partner of disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. This second part focuses specifically on her relationship with Epstein. So if you want to check that out, head over to defiance.news. Outside of that, have a great week and I will see you all soon. It's good evening here, Yassine. I'm not sure what time it is there. It's like kind of probably afternoon, right? It is uh, 1.30 p.m., so New York time. Right. Well, you've, you've got a bit of your day to go, but this is uh, the end of the day for me. This is my last job. Listen, great to get you on. Obviously, I've known about ARC for a while, um, and I was really fascinated by these two pieces you recently wrote. But I, th- I think just as a setup, because not everyone's going to know ARC Invest, do you want to tell them what you guys do? Absolutely. So um, we are an asset management firm uh, that was founded in uh, 2015 by uh, ARC's current CEO, CIO, Kathy Wood. And we focus uh, exclusively on uh, disruptive innovation in the public markets. So, you know, our general view of the public markets is that they tend to be very sort of short term in their thinking and their approach. Uh, When you look at like a traditional sell side analyst or an investor in the public equity space, um, you know, they're going to look at, you know, the next quarter, the next few quarters and base their decisions on that. We take a completely different view where we're much, much longer term in our investment horizons And in particular, we think that the most inefficiently priced parts of the market are those focused on sort of technological innovation uh, just because they take uh, longer to play out. And so we thematically invest across um, kind of a wide array of what we like to call um, innovation platforms. So this ranges from um, genomics and DNA sequencing to energy storage to automation robotics, and then one of them being sort of crypto uh, and blockchain. So, you know, we were actually the first public fund manager to gain exposure to uh, GBTC back in 2015. Bitcoin was trading around uh, $200. Um, At the time, we also published kind of a a seminal uh, piece called Bitcoin uh, Ringing the Bell for a New Asset Class that really analyzed Bitcoin in the context of different asset classes and came to the conclusion that kind of the characteristics that Bitcoin present are, are, are very unique um, from a traditional asset class definition. And in fact, um, you know, the, the, the recent white papers that we published are, are really just an extension to that piece. Um, so we've been you know, very, uh, very sort of bullish on, on Bitcoin for the last five years and, and quite vocal about uh, our, our, our growing conviction. Um, so it's great to be here and thanks, thanks for having me. No worries, man. Look, I appreciate you coming on. Both white papers were excellent. They actually got cited in an interview I did previous to this today. I oh, wow. interviewed the CEO of Kraken Financial and their their lead counsel. I think it's their lead counsel, Mar- uh, Marco. Um, and we were talking about the, well, the reason I cited this is because. Um, those kind of four, which we'll get into, those four predictable mm-hmm. economic assurances. They talk about this new world, like this new Bitcoin financial system. And I was saying to them, like, but we're in this legacy trust model. And I, I never really understand the leap. And the great thing that Kraken Financial is doing, they're essentially building that bridge whereby you can operate with both a trusted and trustless model 
within their infrastructure. And so I, I kind of like, I read out those four points and I said, I see how this is, what they are doing is like that bridge between those two worlds. Right. No, I mean, precisely. It, it, the, to, your, to your point, I think the idea that when you look at Bitcoin in the context of like this institution, which is really, really what, what the first part of the white paper presents, you start, it's really best understood in the context of that traditional financial system. So that's sort of one of the biggest things that, you know, as we talk to institutions and, you know, they ask, okay, where do we start? Or, or like, how do I start? How do I try to understand this thing? Um, you know, in my experience, I think its promise is really understood in relation to those traditional financial systems. And even when you look at sort of what the white paper lays out, um, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto himself kind of alluded to kind of the inherent weaknesses of traditional financial institutions uh, to shed light on why something like Bitcoin uh, would be so promising. So th that's that's sort of like, you know, kind of how, the, how this paper was uh, initially set up, where, you know, when you look at kind of the promise of Bitcoin and it, and it being best understood in relation to traditional financial systems, where these uh, institutions themselves were, were one centrally controlled or sort of relied on a trust-based model and were created to sort of standardize the, the exchange of value, to manage wealth, to facilitate economic activity, but that really the integrity or the, 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 the integrity of the institution itself was only a function or exclusively a function of those controlling the institution. Um, and so the single point of failure was, was actually left to the hands of sort of human decision makers. When you look at how sort of decision making is made in this trust-based model, it tends to be much more opaque and much more unpredictable. And that is really just a function of kind of how we operate as humans, where mm -hmm. any sort of rule change to an institution is to the discretion of those who are in control. Uh, and as we sort of gain more power and being able to control those rules, um, there is the, the, the potential for a complete misalignment between those participants and those controlling the institution. So that's what we've sort of started to see as the, the evolution of trust-based institutions is, I think, reaching, reaching its sort of peak. Uh, and then in doing so, sort of we identified kind of where they fall short and why something like Bitcoin um, can at least help to, at, at the very least, discipline these trust-based institutions and perhaps even replace them entirely. Well, that's the thing, because it, it kind of felt like almost an anarchist white paper. Right, I right, know right, your, right. Your, your conclusions weren't completely <laughs> yeah. anarchist, but I was reading this and thinking, it's like, like I didn't plan to do this, but like, let me jump to my conclusion, because I feel like mm -hmm. it's right based on what you said now. So mm -hmm. I was, uh, there's this great book I've mentioned on my show a few times called Engines That Move Markets. And it talks about electricity and the light bulb and the railway and the industrial revolution. I think the final chapter was the internet, right? And I kind of always imagine at some point, like they might reprint in the future and Bitcoin will be part of it. But I was kind of thinking like, there's this journey where the industrial revolution and the digital revolution, then really the information revolution. And then the next one is essentially the financial revolution. But mm -hmm. the financial revolution can could lead to the breakdown of these institutions and governance structures and move us to a more, like I say, it just felt like it was almost like an anarchist white paper. But you laughed as I said that. Yeah, I, I did because what's very funny is that 
when writing this paper, the first thing, and it was in collaboration with Coinmetrics, who's the, uh, the, the, the sort of provider of the data for part two uh, primarily, but my goal was actually, you know, creating an institutional version of sort of the cypherpunk manifesto. Uh, it's like, that's really what I, what, what I sort of sought out to do in that I think that, you know, there's a, a really interesting paradox between kind of what Bitcoin presents in its value proposition as an asset and sort of the threat that those that value proposition has to let's say our our existing sort of structure and what we know with that being said you know as an investor uh, it, it's like it, it's counterproductive to sort of dismiss um the implications of that even if it means that it could potentially sort of you know shrink the relevance of sort of traditional financial institutions and institutions more broadly and i think that that's sort of part of Kind of the technological advancement is that it, it, you, you're slowly replacing sort of humans with machines, um, and I kind of like in, in part of the backdrop that, that that we presented in part one and what you alluded to is looking at sort of the evolution of economic organization more broadly. It, it is also helpful to understand just how unique uh, we are in, in in having sort of in being at the at the cusp of of what could be a complete upend of the monetary systems that we know today. And so, well, you know, even I more that, than that, I say yeah. it can be even more than that. Like the timing of this is, you know, you know it's like chicken and egg, right? But this is happening right. a, a potential breakdown in, you know, we've seen like these, uh, like people here in the streets again, I, another interview, sorry, because I yeah. interrupted you, but another interview I had yeah. the other day, somebody mentioned the fourth turning, right? And I was mm-hmm. out in uh, Santiago, Chile recently, massive wealth disparity there. They've got issues with their pension system, which they changed. And um, so people are writing on the streets. We've seen it in France. We've seen it. We've seen it across the world. We're seeing it now in the US. We're seeing this kind of, I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but it feels like a revolution on the streets where people are like, I've had enough of this shit. Mm-hmm. But we're having it, it's happening at a time when we have Bitcoin. <laughs> Which all kind right. of feels like everything's coming together at this same point. And I, I don't know about you, like I was always like, I I just imagined I would always live in this same kind of societal structure. I didn't imagine that I would potentially live through a, a time where society would evolve from one kind of place to another. It would go from this kind of place of kind of standard democracy, standard financial system to one where we might have a completely new financial system and completely new governance structures. And we might live through all of this. And, and it's a, it's only something that we'd like kind of realize after the fact too. Like that's part of the mm. thing that makes this so unique is that, you know, we are, you know, in, in fact, I'd like to, I'd like to mention that it's kind of a continuation to your point of like, this is almost anarchist. I mean, I wouldn't call it anarchist, but but like the, a lot of the inspiration from the part one was was after reading sort of Sovereign Individual. And I was like, mm-hmm. you know, how exactly um, can I make that sort of more digestible, let's say, to the everyday institution? Um, and, and part of sort of the, the thesis in this in the Sovereign Individual is that you have like human cultures in general have these blind spots. Right. And and there, it's very difficult to sort of uh, describe paradigm changes that are sort of extremely large, especially those that are happening around us and in the moment. Um, And so the the idea is that really before an age can be reasonably sandwiched in the middle of two other ages, it must have already come to an end. 
right? And so the so so this kind of comes it where where we are living in a very unique position where let's say you know a few centuries down the line we look back at this and we're like wow this was actually a very very significant paradigm shift in just how we economically organize. Um, so that, that, that's a, that's an excellent point that you bring up. All right. Well, listen, we should work through it. And I will send yeah. people to read them, especially part one. Um, mm-hmm. As I said to you before we started, part two, I think most people know a lot of that stuff. But part mm-hmm. one was a real eye-opener to me. Like I knew it all, but you structured it in a like a rational argument. By the way, how long have you been working on this? Uh, I've been working on this for – it took a few months. Yeah, like right. the, yeah, it took a few months. So an interesting thing with that then is whilst you've been working on this, MicroStrategy has happened. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> how did how, how was that for you? Because essentially, and I brought this up in another interview yesterday, but it kind of probably validated a lot of what you were working on. I mean, absolutely. As as like a as a firm that sort of looks at at public companies, I think that the fact that you know, there was a, a significantly, I would say, prominent public company that decided to convert their entire cash balance sheet to Bitcoin was a huge, huge sort of testament to, I think, where we're headed. Uh, I think the, the idea that, you know, the case that Michael Saylor even makes for holding Bitcoin is also sort of quite fascinating, where it's like you'd almost think that he was pitch- he, he, that he was sort of part of Bitcoin Twitter for the last five years. And he's the one that's been posting uh, everything that goes in from sort of the monetary uh, uh, uncertainty to sort of a hedge against an economic apocalypse to sort of the devaluation of, of the dollar. And we have sort of these negative yielding assets and we need something like Bitcoin. But to hear that from, uh, you know, an operator um, that actually pulled the trigger is much, much different than, you know, someone who has an individual uh, portfolio that in, and holds Bitcoin. Um, you know, whether or not, you know, this was maybe a part of, of a PR move, because, uh, you know, I, I will say that MicroStrategy um, isn't a particularly, I would say, sought after, like, kind of company in general as, as, uh, as you know, as an investor. The, the fact that they have sort of the, the hindsight and, and, the, and they're willing to take the risk to be the first to move here, I think will create a, a very fascinating kind of ripple or domino effect. And we'll start to see a, a trend where it'll become sort, sort of, you know, normalized to have a portion of your balance sheets in Bitcoin. And, you know, whether or not this pertains to institutional investors, at the very least, it provides kind of validation. You know, we, we like to sort of say that there are a lot of very interesting catalysts that suggest that, you know, we're reaching a very crucial tipping point where five years ago, you know, as an institution, you couldn't necessarily have the same discussions that you're, that you're having today. Uh, and part of that is institutional adoption and validation. Uh, so anything from, you know, the Paul Tudor Jones announcement <laughs> earlier this year uh, to, you know, Fidelity, um, you know, working on it uh, for the last few years to, you know, Square, to Bact, to Cambridge Associates, all of these sort of institutional players who acknowledge that this is a worthy enough asset to explore. Well, I think that, you know, arguably the, the micro strategy decision is, is one of the most important validators uh, from an institutional standpoint. So um, definitely will perk some ears. Yeah. And I guess as you uh, talk to other institutions, you can you can point them to MicroStrategy as a as a case study. Well, listen, look, let's let's work through this. So I guess 
to explain where we're at, we've got to talk about that journey of how we got here. So could you just talk up through that part where you explained how we've evolved to create increasingly complex modes of economic organization and and then we'll we'll touch on why that's become so inefficient. Sure. So I, I would say the, the real punchline there is that, you know, economic activity uh, in general and the basis of economic organization over the last, you know, centuries has migrated from the physical to the digital world. And with that, there's been a complete kind of shift in power dynamics and that the mechanisms by which we can actually scale and facilitate interaction have, have shifted as well. In fact, the kind of this section was actually largely uh, influenced by uh, Nick Zabo's uh, money, uh, blockchains and social scalability piece, um, where he sort of talks about kind of uh, these sort of novel uh, digital institutions. Um, and in the context of sort of where we are historically, um, where we start with sort of hunter-gatherer society that really just relied on face-to-face -face interaction uh, in very small groups, there, it, it was sort of hard to scale that interaction and, and, and communities were really established in rural areas, very sort of uh, limited uh, labor beyond just manual labor. Uh, we transitioned sort of to, to the agricultural um, revolution where, you know, we could scale interaction. Uh, we adopted sort of new forms of social organization. Towns and cities were formed. Uh, centers of trade and commerce were created. And then we effectively shifted from agricultural uh, to industrial, um, where there the productive the, the productivity sort of increased ten hundred fold. You know we could basically uh, you know complete tasks extremely efficiently, and through that process of industrialization, that's what effectively enabled sort of the the information age, and that's where now power is not granted to sort of traditional industries developed through industrialization but really to those who are, are in charge of storing and distributing information. Now, the, 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 the interesting thing to note here is that there are specific institutions that are really defined as a, as, a, as a mechanism by which you can govern the behavior and rules that facilitate coordination, uh, coordination that evolve through as sort of the ages evolve, right? Where, you know, in the early days, we, we may have had kind of just, you know, marriage, and as like the primary institution. Now we're sort of starting to see in what we define as Bitcoin, um, kind of these digital novel economic institutions that have been unlocked and facilitated by, you know, specific kind of the advancements of technology more broadly. Um, so that's anything from, you know, the, the Facebooks and, and, and the Twitters of the world um, that are themselves institutions uh, that, that facilitate kind of communication and, and interaction to, you know, the Amazons of the world uh, that help uh, facilitate commercial matchmaking to, you know, the Netflixes and the YouTubes of the world that allow for sort of the streaming of content libraries, um, you know, consumed on demand. So all of these, all of these are really actually breakthroughs in novel institutions um, that allow for sort of humans to scale interaction in an unprecedented way. With that as the backdrop, you know, we think that, you know, really the most notable institution to rise from the information age is one that puts into question the very basis of economic organization. And it's really, you know, a combination of, you know, facilitating economic organization, but doing so in a trust minimized way. 
so before I even wrote this paper, you know, there were a lot of people who defined Bitcoin as really this trust minimized institution that ba- that eliminated sort of the need to trust a single central point of failure uh, and replace that with, you know, very hard to break cryptography. Uh, and in doing so, you basically eliminate or transcend any sort of political control uh, that one might have. And, and so by having sort of an institution in the form of Bitcoin that is borderless in nature, that, it, that doesn't really have kind of a, a state that is tied to it, this becomes uh, extremely profound in the implications that it has in basically transacting and storing value more broadly. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, we think will be, you know, probably the largest or most dramatic contributor to the evolution of economic organization than any other breakthrough in history. So that's that's sort of that that section that 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 we were discussing. Well, before we get into that, let's talk about yeah. the shortfalls of the current centralized trusted institutions. Right. Uh, I mean, I had I studied very basic economics at school. Uh, but one thing that always stuck with me is when we talked about diseconomies of scale. When something gets too big, it becomes mm-hmm. inefficient. And obviously, right. these uh, institutions, these governance structures, the central banks, whatever it is, they've all become mm-hmm. super inefficient as these systems have become more complex. Talk about those inefficiencies, though. And I, th- I guess the thing that really stood out to me is that the biggest issue with all of this, I mean, you mentioned it earlier. I wrote it out, out here. Trust-based systems tend right. to fail because of, the failings of human character. Precisely. Put, to put it simply, the the model of a trust-based institution is that as it scales, you become further and further exposed to the risk of a single point of failure. Uh, and that single point of failure is, is largely like, you know, human decision-making. Um, so there is a very sort of that interesting quote that Satoshi um, has in his white paper where you know he basically says that you know financial institutions basically still suffer from inherent weaknesses of a trust-based model, uh, and that trust-based model, again, as I alluded to earlier, is basically can be thought of as kind of the integrity of the institution being a function of those who are controlling the institution. So, like the idea of like trusted third parties, uh, and they can't be they, they can't be they can't be trusted. Uh, you basically on one end of the spectrum have, you know, massive data honeypots that are really in control, where, where really a few are in control. And then the, on the other end of the spectrum, you have, you know, things as as big and important as monetary policy that are dictated by, you know, a few people behind closed doors. And so when you have a trust-based model that relies on a few people to make decisions, uh, it becomes very difficult as a participant in an institution to monitor sort of what those decisions are, why they've been made, and uh, is it to the benefit of that participant? Um, So we see even today sort of central banks and their ability to govern monetary policy, uh, and we can get into this uh, further, all the way to commercial banks and, and their custody and management of assets, tends to be very opaque and unpredictable. And that's because of the very nature of a trust-based model where, you know, it's hard to, net, to audit these institutions. It's hard to create like a, a system by which it, there are clearly aligned incentives between those who control the institution and the participants. And so in general, the conclusion is that the financial system that has been founded on this trust-based model 
fails or has failed to provide sort of a predictable economic system. And we, in this paper, lay out specifically four uh, what we call assurances that we think that a predictable financial system should meet um, if it is considered to be predictable. Um, and so I'll, I'll just quickly uh, lay that out. Um, so the first can, one well, is- Can I ask is, something first? Just, just before sure. you go there. So, so when you talk about the people in control of the systems, what we're basically saying is it is the politics of these systems which cause the biggest issues. So election cycles require votes. Votes require maybe economic stimulus or certain political parties may uh, have certain policies. You know, talk, you could talk about Trump's tax cuts when he first came in. You could talk about more socialist ideas or something like Bernie Sanders. But they aren't neutral. They are they are <laughs> monetary decisions which are made politically to right. benefit a specific group of people. And, and are really just an emergent property of how the system is set up. It's not like there is an optimal way to, let's say, manage a trust-based institution. It's just that it is a fundamental consequence of, of relying on a trust-based model. Um, and so as it sort of evolves, you start to see that, you know, there are a few people that are exerting, you know, control over an institution that impedes people to, you know, uh, participate uh, and live under a predictable economic system. And really the, the only way I would say to kind of eliminate or correct that is by, is by, is by eliminating the trust-based model entirely. And, and that goes back to sort of Hayek's point uh, as it pertains specifically to money where it's like, okay, we need a, the only way, the only way that we can trust money uh, is if, if, it, if it, we just leave it out of the hands of the government. Um, and, and so that was, that, that, the brought, I think uh, I paraphrase that quote, but it, it's 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 that very idea where okay, the reason why Bitcoin shows so much promise is because it doesn't even give that option to exert control, and so users basically what you see is what you get, um, and that's something that is kind of uh, fundamentally different to what we're used to. These four, because we're going to get into these kind of these four economic insurances. Is that is this um is this like a framework you developed yourself or is there some some other backing to it? Uh, yes, yeah, so this is a framework that I developed, but that was largely uh, influenced and inspired by previous work. Uh, I would say, namely, uh, Hasu's work okay. on Bitcoin for like the Skeptic's Guide to Bitcoin, yeah, uh, where he basically kind of laid out uh, Bitcoin's uh, kind of properties that it guarantees. Uh, and so, and so, I basically tried to generalize that to um, kind of broader systems. But you know, that, 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 that's some that's some seminal work that this piece pulls from. Okay, so let's let's work yeah. through them. Okay, so sure. firstly, values should be exchanged globally and freely. Yep. Uh, so that's the first exchange. Uh, that's the first uh, assurance. Um, so the 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 single sentence that uh, kind of suggests why the trust-based model fails to meet that assurance is because centralized parties themselves determine the eligibility of participants and they control the flow of capital. And so that is a, is a, is a fundamental barrier uh, by which people can kind of exchange uh, value globally and freely. So there's this sort of common critique of, uh, of, uh, of Bitcoin and that it's kind of facilitates criminal activity and that 
we, we, we have to stop it because, you know, criminals and drug lords are using it. The reason why the traditional financial system is able to sort of, let, let's say, identify a quote unquote criminal is because they control the flows of capital uh, from top to bottom. What that means is that they also define what is, let's say, criminal or malicious uh, or worth censoring. What that also means is that if a single transaction can be censored or controlled, then all transactions can be censored and controlled. And if all transactions can be censored and controlled, then your ability to exchange value permissionlessly, globally and freely is severely impeded. And we've seen that um, specific examples of that. Um, you know, PayPal uh, and sort of centralized payment processors is a, is a prominent example um, where, you know, you might see some deplatforming without really any rationale because uh, they, they're a private company uh, and yet we rely on them for a lot of the kind of uh, mediating consumer transactions. Um, e- even governments might end up pressuring these private companies to do so. We, we actually saw that uh, when PayPal froze the WikiLeaks accounts. And so that combined with the fact that these are, com- are private companies that, that need to abide by local jurisdiction, uh, it, it becomes very easy to see how the ability to uh, freely transact is, is near impossible. Whereas the Silk Road is kind of validation of this. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Like there, there, there are ways where, like there, where people have, have said, okay, we want to eliminate uh, or lift any barriers uh, but we can't necessarily be sort of responsible for uh, what goes on, very similar to how, you know, uh, you could create a private um, network and, and access uh, like uh, sort of resources that in today's jurisdiction would be, let's say, considered uh, criminal. And so I, I don't, so that, that, that's at the a private level. There's also at the, at the state level. And that is a, a, actually a large function of macroeconomic policy. Um, where, you know, you often hear kind of the capital controls that a government is going to impose on citizens of a country. Um, there, that, that, that's really just a, a function of what macroeconomic policy the country decides to em- employ. So if a monetary authority is going to fix exchange rates and then control the money supply, then they have to actually limit um, the, the net flows of capital. And by limiting the net flows of capital, as you see, let's say, in Venezuela or in Lebanon, um, then citizens are basically kind of stuck with um, currency that uh, is slowly being debased that they cannot move out. And, and so that's uh, kind of very interesting. And in, 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 the, uh, in, in, in the paper, we, we show a chart that basically shows that over the last 15, 20 years, uh, the share of countries that are increasing capital controls have increased by threefold, while the share of countries that are reducing capital controls um, ha- have decreased by sixty percent. Wow. Well, basically, what this what what this suggests is that you know people are uh, definitely countries are definitely kind of being overprotective in not allowing for anyone to move currency outside of the country. And so, if you have a you know a relative abroad and you want to send them dollars. Uh, it's going to be uh, uh, very difficult to, to convert your local currency into dollars and then send those dollars. Next up, I talked to Yassine more about Bitcoin and institutional investment. But before that, I got a message from my amazing sponsors. So let's talk about Kraken. 
It's definitely the best place for buying and selling Bitcoin. I always use Kraken for buying and selling Bitcoin. You know why? Because they crush it. Everything they do, they do to the highest quality. They're consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, and security is really important to me. They also have the best in-class customer service. So whatever issue you have, whoever you are, wherever you are, if you reach out to them, they're going to help you get it sorted. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have every tool you could possibly need. So whatever your level of experience, if you head over to Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile first app. So if you want to trade Bitcoin on the go, just download that. And with their margin trading futures and OTC desk, Kraken has got every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. Find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Also, let's talk about BlockFi, who are the future of Bitcoin and financial services, and I'm a customer of theirs, and I love receiving my interest every month. So let's talk about what you can do with BlockFi. Firstly, you can open up an interest account. Every month, you can earn interest on your Bitcoin. Also, using your Bitcoin as collateral, you can take out a USD loan. You can also fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet, and with the BlockFi mobile app, you can now fully manage your account on the go. With so much else coming this year, the team is really, really going to be crushing it. If you're interested in checking BlockFi out, I recommend you do your own research, then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Okay, well, let's um, let's go on to the second one. I mean, this is an obvious one for the libertarians, like wealth should be honed and holy yeah. and, and protectors this is just the basics of property rights which by the way is a topic was something i n- never heard of before bitcoin just never something right. i've been introduced to um uh, and i hear it a lot when i listen to i don't know if you know tom wood's show the tom wood's podcast yeah. but i listen to a lot of his and they talk a lot about property rights stefan levera as well talks a lot about property rights mm-hmm. um but this was very new to me but like again this shouldn't be a controversial topic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I honestly, uh, this assurance, like the, the one on, on property rights is personally, I think my my favorite in terms of Bitcoin's value proposition and what it provides. And also one that in the institutional world is um, quite underappreciated, where, you know, a lot of times we talk about sort of the separation of money and state as, uh, as what Bitcoin is enabling. Uh, I would go like further and to say, really, it's the separation of property rights and state. Um, and that is a very, very fundamental um, kind of paradigm shift that not many people fully appreciate. Uh, to your point, something that's a given is, yeah, you would think that sort of an, an indicator of prosperity is the ability to sort of wholly own your property and have it be protected. If we look at sort of the history of property rights and the property, private property systems, uh, there's a, there, there's a base, the basic conclusion is that a lot of it is reliant on sort of a local protector. And again, Hasu actually wrote a piece on this called Bitcoin and the promise of independent property rights that, that really dives into this. But the idea is that, you know, Bitcoin as a, as a system, um, is an entire, embeds an entirely independent property system and one that doesn't necessarily rely on the existence of a local protector. When you look at assets today and the the suite of asset classes that we have, most of them, uh, while of course presenting varying trade-offs, are highly reliant on a local protector to enforce those property rights. 
uh, some more than others. So we created sort of this asset protection spectrum that 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 pulls uh, from kind of this mental model of uh, shallow versus deep protection, uh, where shallow protection is defined as sort of protection that's derived from authority, while deep protection is sort of protection that can be derived in the absence of authority or that are inherent to the asset itself. So for example, like the shallowest of assets is something like digital cash, right? Where you need to rely on authority to tell you that you own this digital cash. So I am, you know, custodying my digital cash on, uh, you know, at, at my local bank. At any point that local bank can, you know, choose to freeze that cash, uh, can tell me I can't withdraw that cash, can put restrictions on who I can send that cash to. And that cash itself is also then further tied to uh, the country's monetary policy where, you know, okay, I might have a, a reliable local bank, but is my sort of monetary authority reliable or are they going to end up, you know, um, you know, implementing a, a monetary policy that will completely de debase my currency? So that, that, that's, that's sort of kind of where the concept of property rights come in, where you think that you own your digital cash, but you really only own it to the extent that someone, i.e. the government, tells you that you own it. But as soon as they, you know, as, as, as soon as there is a, 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 an issue with the, the government being able to reliably enforce those property rights, um, then, then it's effectively out of your hands. And so that, that's sort of... Uh, what we're seeing today is we're seeing that there's even in developed countries an increasingly lack of reliability in being able to protect basic property rights. Uh, this this includes anything from you know the the early uh, 1930s, uh, the famous kind of U U.S. ban on the ownership of gold, uh, something that a lot of Bitcoiners like to bring up uh, uh, that persisted for more than 40 years and then ultimately led to the complete abandonment of the gold standard. But even more recently, in, in 2016, obviously the, the demonetization of all 500,000 rupee banknotes uh, by the government of India, um, which many sort of kind of consider to be the complete confiscation of property without due process, to even more recently, um, you know, anyone who was affiliated with the Hong Kong protests um, had their funds frozen from kind of the HSBC. Uh, so again, the, we're starting to realize in in the midst of all this sort of economic and macro turmoil that your wealth, for the most part, is guaranteed only if institutions are willing to protect it. Massive. And I understand why that's your favorite. Number three was kind of my favorite. The rules should be enforced reliably and predictably because I've always been a fan of Bitcoin's monetary policy because it's so simple. It's essentially two things. It's a fixed gap of twenty-one million and, and a um, and a known um, change in the emission schedule, and that to me was always, it's always been so simple. But the reason, the thing that clicked to me, I was talking to Dan Held about it once, is that what we currently have is a group of guys in a room, you know, 10, 15, 20, whatever it is, making decisions, pulling levers, which can have all different kinds of impacts of different people in all different ways. And it's it can be kind of unfair at times, right? You can be punished by decisions that other people have made or other choices people have made. So, for example, you can be punished as a saver. 
because there's high inflation, because of the poor decisions what other people have made. But what I like about Bitcoin is that actually it's such a simple monetary policy that I know what it is. Therefore, essentially, it's it's pure capitalism. I'm rewarded for what I've done. I'm rewarded for the my productivity, for the Bitcoin I create, the Bitcoin I save. And there's no central authority who can ruin that for me. My Somebody said to me once, essentially, you have a Bitcoin score, and that is the percentage of Bitcoin you own. So, you know, divide that into 21 million. Once you, at that percentage, as long as you don't spend it or use it, that can never go down. Nobody can do anything to make that go down, but you can do things to make that go up. So this is why I like this one. I think you summed it up perfectly. I mean, the idea uh, of having a credible monetary policy in Bitcoin, I think even beyond just its strict scarcity is its biggest, biggest value proposition. Uh, because it's something that as a participant in the Bitcoin network, you're effectively guaranteed rules that that you can verify won't be broken. And this is a, I would argue, the biggest contrast to what we see um, in sort of the, the trust-based model. And, you know, Bitcoiners and even in the paper like to sort of cite central banks and their ability to dictate monetary policy as, as being the prime example. But I, I, I can even extend that to to any sort of, let's say, modern day trust-based institution. So, you know, going back to the example of PayPal, right, where you might have in the in the byline uh, in the bylaws a very very small change in the terms of service, and now you your entire business is effectively destroyed because you can no longer you know bank uh, or, or use PayPal uh, as a service. Um, so it's the idea that you have specific rules that are embedded in this institution that are very, very difficult to change, if not impossible. Uh, I think the central bank example is the most prominent example because at the end of the day, Bitcoin is seen as sort of this emerging monetary asset. And the reason why it's such a uh, sought after asset is because it has arguably the most predictable monetary policy of any other asset. You know, when you compare that to, to sort of uh, modern central banking, uh, it, it's a completely different story, uh, and I, and I, and there's a very interesting um, kind of chart that that I show in in this in in the second uh, in this section that basically uh, highlights what the implications of that unpredictable monetary policy might be. You know, it's beyond it, it extends beyond just uh, you know having you know the a few a few Fed uh, governors telling you that they're going to be printing money. There are sort of, I would say, global impacts. So if you look at, there's a, a chart that basically shows how the share of countries whose domestic currency lost more than half of its purchasing power over a five-year period saw massive spikes during kind of three of the biggest, I would say, US-based monetary policy decisions. The first is sort of that creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913 where uh, immediately after that, we saw 50% of countries lose half of their current their purchasing power over the last five, over the five years. The enactment of the Gold Reserve Act uh, in 1933 was the second one, and then ultimately sort of the U.S. abandonment of the gold exchange standard in 1971. Uh, what this really suggests is that we see that kind of the U.S. dollar and the United States as that global hegemony uh, that has the sort of world reserve currency when making a decision 
often affects uh, the monetary policy of uh, other countries. Um, and so uh, the, the, the unfortunate thing is that if a developing country or a different country were to follow kind of the similar monetary policy, they would be far more affected by that policy than, you know, the United States, which is, which is, you know, undoubtedly today the, uh, the global reserve currency, but, you know, that could change. Um, so, so the idea is that, you know, not only uh, do you have sort of unpredictability that can cost, I would say, the user experience of a participant when they're, when they are part of an institution, uh, but also can have sort of global damaging effects on kind of uh, countries at large. Uh, and that's really just a function of, of unpredictability. Uh, one day you say that you're going to be on the gold standard and the next day you abandon it. So that's, again, uh, something that Bitcoin does not have. All right. Last one. The integrity of the system should be verifiable. Uh, Pierre Rochard will love that one, especially as he's been going after the uh, ETH nodes, unable to verify the <laughs> total supply. Um, but again, the, and I guess the important point in this, we should we should kind of mm. put out there, which, you know, this is me identifying it. You, you have this in your document is that, Without this, one, two, and three don't work. Like exactly. this is the bedrock for the entire model. Precisely. This is the umbrella assurance for all of those to even, you know, be worth anything. I think the unique thing about Bitcoin that doesn't exist in trust-based institution is that it's it's almost binary, right? Where you have a, an assurance where you can basically verify and audit. Uh, the network or the institution. And if you don't, then you are subject to massive unpredictability uh, and unreliability. So you need to have sort of a system that can be verifiable for you to, to reliably feel that all previous assurances are being met. In the case of a trust-based institution, there is little to no transparency. And that's a function of, again, just the very makeup of the, of a trust-based institution, but also because there is really no incentive to be accountable. Because if there are just a few people who are controlling it and the switching costs are high or there isn't really any other option, uh, then you know, there, is, there is no necessary kind of need to prove that uh, previous assurances are being met. And that's why I kind of alluded to earlier where I think Bitcoin will at the very least discipline uh, institutions that rely on a trust-based model because now there's optionality to, uh, to, to, to participate in an institution that doesn't. Um, and so this kind of, we highlight sort of the, the global financial crisis and the kind of lack of auditability with the kind of capital requirements for commercial banks um, that effectively uh, was a catalyst for uh, the financial crisis. Um, you know, even things like today, commercial banks uh, and sort of their cash reserve requirements are, are is slowly decreasing uh, over time. In fact, you know, the U.S. Uh, recently announced that their minimum reserve requirement for deposit institutions is now zero. Um, and since 95, we've seen sort of an 80 percent drop in that reserve requirement ratio. Um, all that to say that, you know, the the need uh, or the perceived need to um, have sort of transparent and auditable 
backstops is is slowly uh, degrading as you know single uh, institutions gain more and more control uh, over the financial system. So that's that's you know an, uh, the the final one. It sounds very fragile having zero reserve. It, 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 I mean, it, it does. I think that we'll, we'll see if we, we learn from our mistakes, but that's one of the things that uh, a lot of the, sort of the crypto banks or the new age banks, i.e. exchanges, are trying to kind of shed light on, you know, we're a new age bank with transparency. So things like proof of reserves uh, is something that ha- that is increasingly a part of discussion in the, in the Bitcoin and crypto community uh, just because of sort of the implications of not having that those reserve requirements in the traditional financial system so a lot of i think the evolution of the infrastructure and the expectations for kind of companies building on top of bitcoin are 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 inspired by the limitations that we've seen in sort of this trust-based model see again i'm going to bring up kraken financial again today because the conversation i had with them they mentioned that they're operating with 100 percent reserves which means they can't obviously be involved. I mean, that's natural for their Bitcoin uh, exchange component, mm. but for their fiat component, 100% reserves, which means they can't rehypothecate. They can't they fractionally lend, but it does mean they don't require FDIC insurance, which is something that I came across when I did a study into, I did a four part about Steve Mnuchin and look into what happened in the housing crisis um, yeah. and how essentially the FDIC bailed out all these banks to billions of dollars and it's just kind of insane and but that that kind of migration to this fully reserved fully backed it it becomes the bank i want to bank with as somebody who's responsible because there's something that comes up like we don't often reward prudence now Mm -hmm. saving isn't rewarded yeah, it costs money to save. <laughs> Unless you're investing and and getting a better return, the the interest rates in banks are so low at the moment. I mean, you're lucky if you get you know point zero five percent. So there's no incentive to save. You you are penalised for saving, and also you're at risk for the banks themselves defaulting, have a run on the banks. But at least what's happening with something like Kraken and hopefully other banks, which uh, I think there's one Caitlin Long's involved in, they're moving to that model where at least you feel like okay. Prudence is something that's back on the table. Precisely. I think that in addition to that, whereas the sort of trust-based model or institutions sort of have that excuse of it's very, very hard to, let's say, audit all of our capital and balance sheets and and share that with the world. And, you know, this is why we need, you know, audit auditors and trusted third parties is because we're not set up to have fully transparent um, kind of auditing mechanisms with like this new age and, and Bitcoin, it's it's very cost efficient to verify reserves as well. Um, so it's like the way that Bitcoin is set up for these exchanges to be f- uh, fully backed and the ability for those exchanges to provably verify that they are backed uh, is, is far easier to do um, than anything we've seen before. So there's an element of convenience as well that we're starting to see. So the second part, that again, I'll link it to people, but the second part is really about the investment opportunity and the size of the opportunity. Before mm-hmm. we get into that, what is the general kind of 
feedback you get from people when talking to institutional investors about this is it evolving like has it changed over the time you've been with arc are, are, are people warming up to it or are you getting the same kind of knockbacks it's a good question um i i, I would say that we were starting to reach uh, an, an inflection point where for those who previously dismissed Bitcoin and did not conduct any research in their dismissal of Bitcoin have now come to the realization that if they are going to say no, that needs to be an educated no. So, you know, three or four years ago, we'd walk in a room and we'd be laughed out the door. Uh, today, will receive sort of a respectful no, but they will have to sort of check that box of having listened to it and 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 being quote unquote on top of it. Are 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 institutions fully embracing this? Uh, I, I would say that not not yet uh, and not entirely. Are do institutions fully understand this? I would say definitely not. I think that you know part of why we set out to write this white paper and 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 the research that we conduct is is really because I think that there is a fundamental missing core component in, in, edu- in the education of Bitcoin to institutions. Um, you know, we, 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 we also published a few months ago the whole response to Goldman Sachs uh, and their stance on Bitcoin, um, where, you know, they came up with arguments that are not only stale, uh, but fundamentally misunderstand like what Bitcoin is. Um, and so that for us is like, okay, well, and that just really means that either, you know, they, they, they're not, uh, they don't have access to the right resources or they're kind of almost, um, you know, purposefully being ignorant. Um, and, and so this is really just an attempt to further educate. I, I would say, you know, we're still a few years out before, you know, you have like, you know, a pension or endowment fund who's going to be comfortable, let's say, custodying their own Bitcoin but but we're getting there. I think it's a, a positive trajectory. But you know, we're, we're still, I, I do, do think we're still far from a wide wide scale adoption. Maybe one more cycle then. But then again, I guess it's a bit like the internet, right? Right. There are a lot of people dismissive of the internet early on, and those who embraced it did well. I mean, we saw what happened to Blockbuster. It's like such a cliche, and and a lot of these you know technical evolutionary points kodak is another great example i mean even myself guilty when i had a digital agency and social media blew up i dismissed it and then that could have been a very successful part of my business i guess people like microstrategy could end up being rewarded royally and you know become more expensive for others later on but that that momentum shift appears to be coming and in some Mm -hmm. ways you know based on your risk points maybe that's a good thing because you have the over institutionalization of bitcoin as a risk anyway Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's the thing is that Bitcoin is inherently in a sort of uninstitutional asset at its best. With that being said, the way that, you know, an institution would probably eventually look at this is that, you know, Bitcoin is not going away. That's the thing. Very similar to mm-hmm. how the Internet is not going away. Whether or not you like it, whether or not you have uh, qualms with it, whether or not, you know, your government has banned it or, you know, of a government that has banned it, it lives and breathes on the Internet and it is effectively unstoppable. Uh, You know, there's arguments that, yes, you can sort of ghettoize Bitcoin and you can figure out ways to, you know, heavily restrict its its access points. Uh, But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, there's this game theory going on across nation states, across institutions, 
that again, I think that to your point, the micro strategy may have unleashed where if it isn't going away and people are buying it and people will continue to buy it, well, it is in my best interest to, to buy it as well. Um, so that's, that's sort of how I think the, the eventual sort of shift uh, we'll see where it's just, there are too many people who, who have it. Uh, and now there's just going to be kind of a FOMO at the, not just retail level, but institutional level. Yeah, during the next bull run. So, what what is the size of the opportunity here then? Sure. So, uh, we sort of size the opportunity as being in the multiple trillions, depending on sort of the estimates. Uh, I would say between one to five trillion uh, over the next uh, five years, um, and that is uh, that is from its sort of two hundred billion dollar market cap today. So, um, you know, Bitcoin has seen a, a massive appreciation. Uh, and people think that, oh, well, this is sort of uh, the beginning of the end. But, uh, you know, we really just think that, uh, that, this is just the, that this is just the beginning and that there's a, a lot more upside to come. I think the very unique thing about sort of Bitcoin's opportunity and something that we like to tell investors is that, you know, one, it's a non-productive asset. So it, you can't really think of it like a traditional equity or a bond. Uh, in that you, you project sort of some sort of cash flow based on you know usage or profitability, and you come up with the, with a price target. Uh, by being a non-productive asset, that means that the value accrual dynamics are very unique, and that value accrues exclusively as a function of demand relative to supply. And what that means is that all sort of Bitcoin use cases end up being additive, and and by being additive, uh, uh, ends up being sort of positive sum for for the the the, the network and, and and the network value. So people kind of like to think that you know there are several use cases, opportunities, and each of them sort of compound uh, one on top of the other. You know, we have four that we've sort of sized as we think that are are the primary uh, kind of opportunities over the next five years. You know, obviously you have sort of Bitcoin as the digital gold, which is kind of the primary narrative that a lot of institutions are comfortable with. Um, you know, we think that, you know, Bitcoin improves upon a lot of gold's limitations and, and uh, part of like gold's demise was a function of limitations or characteristics that Bitcoin doesn't have. Uh, you know, namely uh, the fact that it is much easier to divide. It's verifiable, it's portable, it's transferable. So it doesn't necessarily... Uh, it isn't necessarily subject to kind of the centralization of reserves, although we're starting to see that slowly shift in the quote unquote over institutionalization. Uh, but if you were to sort of buy the fact that Bitcoin is a better version of gold uh, and you look at where Bitcoin is today, less than 2% of gold's market cap, um, you know, it could very easily take sort of 10% uh, of, of its share over the next five to 10 years. And that's a trillion dollar market cap. You know, you, you also have Bitcoin as a global settlement network, which uh, Saif Dean uh, first introduced, um, where, you know, you can imagine a world where Bitcoin network settles, you know, transactions to, to banks in a global network and effectively replaces sort of the Fed wire uh, because Bitcoin is very, very effective at settling sort of large value uh, transactions more than sort of those small micropayments uh, at the base layer, at least. Um, and so if you were just to take 
kind of uh, deposit and settlement volumes of, of the United States as a proxy for what that opportunity might look like, you know, Bitcoin could could go from 200 billion to 1.5 trillion uh, if it captures 10 percent of, of settlement volumes um, at a similar deposit velocity. One of my favorites is is the uh, kind of Bitcoin as protection against asset seizure or sort of as mm-hmm. this insurance policy. Um, I think that that's something that, you know, a lot of people underappreciate where if Bitcoin has enabled, you know, a new paradigm for owning property uh, and with the right key management, then it is effectively an unseizable asset. And in a world where we're starting to see both direct and indirect arbitrary asset seizure, as we alluded to earlier, having some sort of hedge against that um, becomes extremely valuable. Um, So if you were to just, you know, estimate the probability of loss of assets over a lifetime, let's say it's one over 1,000 in, every, in any given year. So then over a lifetime, over 50 years, you know, that's a 5% chance of your assets uh, getting seized. So then if you basically, um, you know, translate that probability into an allocation to Bitcoin and 5% of, let's say, total high net worth individual wealth, uh, that opportunity alone is from 200 billion to, to 2.5 trillion. Um, so that's a massive underappreciated opportunity. Uh, and then finally, sort of Bitcoin as a as a catalyst for sort of currency demonetization in emerging markets. Um, you know, we start we've seen um, at, at, a, at a high level, you know, different grassroots organic sort of dollarization in uh, emerging markets. We might see that same thing happen with Bitcoin with the right infrastructure. Uh, so right now, Bitcoin really isn't um, you know mature enough, I'd say, to service an entire economy. But we might start to see sort of uh, a grassroots movement of people sort of demanding Bitcoin instead of fiat, uh, and that will effectively uh, catalyze kind of the the debasement the, the of local currencies. And so, if you were to sort of size that opportunity, take all of M two base money outside of sort of the top four currencies. And Bitcoin, let's say, captures five percent of that M two outside the top four currencies. Um, that again is a is a multi trillion dollar opportunity. So um, you know, I, I think where we are today and where we can be in ten to fifteen years, really as an investor, um, is it, it presents a very compelling uh, case. Yeah, um, and your numbers your numbers were pretty conservative as well, right? You, you, yeah, and you based them out like one percent, five percent, ten percent. Um, yeah. I thought they were fairly conservative. It did make me even more bullish. I keep making these shows at the moment, and um, <laughs> but I think I think what it is 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 the big difference between now and say the last cycle. Kind of, I remember two thousand seventeen is like away from all that kind of DeFi nonsense. Like the Bitcoin ecosystem just seems so much more mature now. The players are more mature. The understanding of Bitcoin is more mature. We also have this weird timing with the world going fucking mad, but it just seems so much more mature now. So, yeah, like made me ultra bullish. I thought both papers were excellent. I will share them out in the show notes. Is there anything you wanted to add before we close out? No, I mean, I really appreciate you uh, having me on. I think that, you know, what we try to do at at ARC is is, uh, provide as much education as possible. I think actually Michael Saylor from MicroStrategy was a very big eye opener for uh, content creators uh, and that, you know, in the, in his po- podcast with, uh, with Pomp, uh, you know, he was like, you know, name dropping a lot of Bitcoin Twitter users 
that that you know we think we, we know well, but we don't realize how much of an impact that they might have on, on the outside world. All that to say that you know if you are a content creator, if you're trying to put out research, uh, I think that you know it has sort of compounding effects on through the implications of, of, of bringing people more and more people in. Um, so that's that's really what the intention of, of this of these two parts were. Um, you know, I, I hope that your your viewers uh, or listeners can enjoy it. And uh, and again, I thank you for for having me on. Yeah, no worries. Anytime. You're, you're always welcome on the show. I like to say very high quality. I'll share them in the show notes. People should definitely check them out. But look, if they want to follow you or f- access directly, where should they go? Sure. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, Yassine Arc. Uh, and you can also uh, download the paper at arc-invest.com and get a sense of uh, kind of the other research that we're, uh, we're looking into as well. All right, my man. Well, listen, Yassine, nice to meet you. Um, Hopefully in person one day. I'm not flying at the moment, but I used to spend a lot of time stateside. So hopefully when the flights are going again, we'll, uh, we can meet Absolutely. up in person and hang out. But listen, appreciate your time. Take care and uh, we'll chat soon. Thank you so much, Peter. Okay. What do you think of that? Did you enjoy that one where you've seen? Have you checked out these white papers? As I said, they're in the show notes. I recommend you go and read them. It's some really, really great work. Now, I keep doing these shows at the moment. There's lots of bullish stuff happening with Bitcoin, which means we're having a lot of bullish shows. If you haven't heard the previous ones, there was a show I made with Guy Swan, Ben Prentice, and Heavily Armed Clown, the Luke Groman show, Lynn Alden one. God, that one's been really popular as well. And of course, we have the show with Plan B, Jeff Booth, and Preston Pish, which is just about to cross 100,000 downloads. These are really bullish times for Bitcoin. It does feel like things are shifting. It does feel like things are going on in the world that are making Bitcoin even more and more relevant. Look, I'm glad I'm in. I'm glad I've got the protection because I don't know what you all think, but it's weird stuff going on in the world right now, weird stuff going on in the economy. And as a Bitcoin, I just feel a little bit protected from all of that. Anyway, I hope you did enjoy this one. If you do want to get in touch, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. If you want to support the show, please head over to iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show on and leave me a review. The reviews are really helpful with appearing in the results when people search for Bitcoin, like on Apple Podcasts. So if you can do that, that would be very cool. Outside of that, if you head over to my other podcast, Defiance, I've got the second part of my series looking at Ghislaine Maxwell, who was the partner of Disgrace Financier Jeffrey Epstein. This episode specifically looks at Epstein. That's over at defiance.news. Outside of that, have a great week and I will see you all soon.